There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout, and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The word of the Lord. Just one other uh, quick announcement that you can have a heads up. If your child is in children's church, you should be ready that when we have the final song, they will be joining you again. They'll be kind of flooding in and finding you uh, just so that we can kind of accelerate the process of finding our kids before the congregational meeting begins a few minutes after. So don't be surprised if suddenly your kid shows up at that final song. Um, before we uh, consider this passage, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we've already in, in different ways acknowledged our weakness and inadequacy. We are prone to wander. And so we have um, prayed to you, the fount of every blessing, to tune our heart to sing your praise. Um, and now also, um, we ask that you would tune our hearts to hear you. Um, Lord, your word is life 
and our faithlessness oftentimes stands in the way of hearing it. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would give us faith, that you would draw us nearer to you, that we might hear you and be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this past week, I was reading something in the New Testament that really kind of caught my attention. It was in 1 Peter 3, um, where he is describing what we are called to be as a church. And he speaks of our call to love one another, how we're to be of, of one mind, compassionate towards each other, having a brotherly affection towards each other. And then he goes on to say that as a church, not only are we called to be this way, but to the world around us, even as sometimes we are being mistreated, our calling is to bless, to seek to love. And he says, and here's where it really kind of caught my attention, as we are doing this, if we are doing this rightly, we should be prepared for the world to be curious, for people around us to ask questions. And here's the question that they want to ask. And the question, Peter says, is not, tell me more about how you're loving like this, which maybe is what we would have expected. And it's not even, tell me what you believe, which maybe is what we feel like defines us. Now, Peter says that as we are being the church that we are called to be, some people around us will say, tell me about your hope, which I find interesting, that there's a sense that when they see a community that is shaped and is willing to love each other and, and love the world around them in this way, the first question they have is, where do they get their hope? I think that's because right now our world is starved. For hope. I was just reading um, uh, in the last week of how the average life expectancy in our country has actually for the first time gone down. Maybe you've heard this, which is never to be expected in like, you know, Western developing world as, as medicine gets better and better, but it's gone down. And the reason is almost exclusively because of what people are calling deaths of despair, deaths caused by uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, or suicide. We are literally dying of hopelessness. And you can feel it. I think you can feel it pervading our culture. And there's a hunger, there's a need for some sort of, some sort of hope, some sort of direction. And so Peter says, and this has been true for as long as since Peter's written until now, that when people smell it, when people recognize that there's something different, that there's a hope that drives a community, they will want to know more. And that is what we are. We are a community who have hope. This is something the Bible is clear about, that one of the things that defines followers of Christ is that we have hope. And, and hope here doesn't mean the way that, that oftentimes we think of the word hope where something may or may not happen, like, I hope the Bears get a better quarterback or something like that. That, that kind of hope is just like, uh, maybe, maybe not. But when Bible, the Bible speaks of hope, the hope that it speaks of is something that is certain. Biblical hope is saying that there is a future beyond right now that we right now cannot see, but that is real. And if we recognize that, it can act as an anchor to our soul to keep us going even when things are hard. It is a certainty of a future goodness. That is biblical hope. And Scripture says that hope is something that we have as followers of Christ. And one of the places that this theme of the hope that we can have as the people of God, this theme comes through again and again, is in the book of Isaiah. 
Now, that might seem strange to you, because if you have been with us the last few weeks, you might be kind of like even pushing back, like, wait a second. Here's what I've heard in Isaiah. I've heard of, of Israel's sinfulness and the sinfulness of people, our need to be humbled, and, and God's judgment, and, and that's definitely there in Isaiah. Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is not one of those ones who's just a don't worry, be happy guy. He brings us through the realities of the brokenness and the problem of this world and the need for judgment. But yet, in Isaiah, again and again, as he brings us through some difficult stuff, he also keeps on bringing us back to places of hope. The, the book of Isaiah actually has five distinct sections, and each section ends with a song. It ends with joy. It ends with a declaration of the good that God intends. And what Isaiah wants us to understand is that even in the midst of the difficulty of this world, even in the midst of God's refining work to humble and bring us to himself, always God's intent for us is good. Always God's intent for us is to bring us into something that is beautiful and delightful. Isaiah desires God's people in the end to have hope. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, there's three different sections. Each of them, in some ways, are spoken of as an in that day. We're told of a day when things will be made right. And they are three things that actually, as we pay attention to them, will seem remarkably unlikely. So, so there, there are three unlikely promises, and let's kind of consider each in turn. The first one we see in the first ten verses is a promise of harmony. So in, in verse 10, in some ways, it summarizes by speaking of how there will be a future in that day where the world will be a resting place and will be glorious. That is, it will be beautiful. People will be at rest. And, and what it's speaking of here is that there will be harmony. And if you think about it, one of the things that makes life so difficult right now is a lack of harmony. It seems like conflict is everywhere. We can think of the ongoing fighting between nations. We can think of political infighting. Or even more locally, sometimes the injustice where it seems like the poor are being taken advantage of by the wealthy. Or, or we even get even closer to that and think about how isn't it the case that oftentimes the people we love most we also hurt the most. And, and there's this conflict, this lack of harmony. And, and it's not just interpersonal. There, there's... there's there's a lack of fit. There's a dissonance in the world itself. We think of earthquakes and, and floods and hurricanes. We think of even how our own bodies can fight against itself with cancer or disease. There is a lack of harmony, and it, it is broken. But, but, but we're promised here, God says, there will be a day when the conflict will be over, and I will make the world harmonious again. He speaks of how he is going to, to bring this leader. He's going to send this leader who is filled with the Spirit of God. And we, we understand now looking hundreds of years later that, that Isaiah here is speaking of Jesus. That Jesus will come and as he leads, he will bring the world into justice. Those are the opening verses. There will be justice. And, and justice is another way of saying a society will finally work People will be harmonious. There will no more be fighting, but people will be in harmony with each other. And then it goes on to say that not only this, but when Jesus comes, he will so fill the world with the reality of God. There will be such an awareness of God 
such a delight in God that even creation itself will be brought in harmony with each other so that you have this image of this wolf, the predator, just hanging out and lying down, taking a nap with a lamb without any fear, of, of a baby just kind of playing ball with a viper and parents looking on, feeling calm about it. There is this perfect harmony. Here's one of the ways that I try to imagine. Imagine for a moment you are in the perfect party. So it's, it's evening, you're having the party outdoors, maybe in someone's really big backyard, the sun is setting, it's painting the sky with beautiful colors. It's just warm enough to be comfortable, but there's a cool breeze at the same time. No mosquitoes are out at all. And there are tables upon tables, and there are, you know, like lights strung everywhere to make it feel festive, and each table is filled with your closest and dearest friends, and as you sit around, there is just wonderful food, and as you eat, you are relaxed. You hear joyful, relaxed laughter, conversation is delightful. There is a band that's playing, and at some point, the more adventuresome children and adults get up, and they start going to an area where they can dance, and there's dancing, and everything is just right. Everything fits. God says, that is what I am promising you, that there will be a day when everything is harmonious and it will be beautiful. Now, perhaps even as we try to imagine, a part of us thinks this is so horribly unlikely In fact, even actually our passage acknowledges that very thing. Do you notice how this promise in the first 10 verses begins? It begins with a dead stump. It's actually a connection to Isaiah 6. You might remember from a couple of weeks ago, God tells Isaiah that Israel, his people are going to be so humbled and so experiencing being brought down that at a certain point there will be nothing left of the people besides this stump that seems like it has no life left. And that, God says, is how things are going to feel. It will feel like things are lifeless. It will feel like there is no hope, but then from the dead stump, a shoot will grow, and I will bring about what I've promised. It's a promise of harmony. And then secondly, we see also not just a promise of harmony, but a promise of wholeness that seems equally unlikely. So verse 11, we also see in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from, and then there's this list of all sorts of different countries. What this is speaking of is kind of a a reversal of what has just happened to the northern ten tribes. You might know that Assyria captures the ten tribes of Israel, and it doesn't just capture them. This is what Assyria would do. Whenever it would conquer a nation, it would seek to obliterate it. And the way it would do it is it would take the people who lived in the land out and fill that land with all sorts of people who didn't ever live there before. And everyone who once lived in that place would be scattered in cities across the world so that there would be no culture left. There would be no people left. There would be nothing. It would be shattered. I don't know if you've ever had like a favorite vase or a glass or mug that you dropped on the floor. This is something that as a klutz has happened more than once by me. And I, I, I know the feeling well. If you've experienced this, there is this feeling when you see it come down and break in pieces of irreversible loss. Because, because you know you can't put it back together again. You know that you've just done something that can't go backwards. And, 
And that's the way the people of Israel are. They have been shattered beyond repair because of their failure. And in that sense, they kind of stand as as a metaphor for the world because this world, it, it feels broken beyond repair, doesn't it? Whether we talk about the political government brokenness or whether we talk about environmental brokenness, it's just we've had thousands and thousands of years to make things work and we still are no closer than we've ever been before. It's, it's broken beyond repair. And maybe some of you, even right now, when you think of, of your life and you are aware of your own feelings, maybe you feel broken beyond repair. And yet, God says, I will do the unthinkable. What has been shattered, what has been scattered throughout the world, I will bring back together all of the pieces of glass I will knit and make whole as if it was never broken before. All of the failure I will forgive. All of the things that have done, been done wrong I will undo and I will make things whole again. Perhaps some of you like me are fans of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There is this moment near the end after a lot of the action has happened where Sam for the first time sees Gandalf who he hasn't seen in a long time, and, he's, and he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Then again, I thought I was going to be dead as well. Is everything sad being made untrue? And, and what God says here is yes. Everything sad, everything broken is going to be made untrue. What has been scattered will be whole, as unlikely as that seems. And then third, we see not only a a promise from God of harmony and a promise of wholeness, but there is also a promise of happiness. When we get to chapter 12, what we see is God speaking of how we will feel, speaking of a song that we will sing. some of you maybe remember, do you remember the commercial from uh, Men's Warehouse where you have this kind of gravelly pitched guy says, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Like, obviously, I can't do it, but some of you might remember that commercial. And I, I think the reason it's effective is that he's not saying you're going to have really good clothes. He, he's saying you are going to feel a certain way. You are going to feel good when you buy clothes from me. And that's where God goes here in these final verses. He speaks not just of what will happen to us, but of how we will feel. Do you notice? He says, you will say in that day. And he's not just saying you're going to say something from rote. He's saying this is going to be the cry of your heart. This is how you are going to feel when I have done these things. And how will we feel, he says? He says, we are going to feel full. We will say, I give thanks to you. That is, I I praise you, God. I have experienced your salvation, and my heart is now so full that I cannot help but give you gratitude. No longer will we have any confusion about God. We will know He is for us, and our hearts will be full. And what's more, not only will we feel full, but we will feel safe. You know how sometimes there's like you know, when a toddler, when he's sitting in the lap of his father or mother and you realize that he just feels absolutely secure because he knows that his dad or his mom can take care of anything. That's, that's how, how you and I will be before God. He says, I will trust and will not be afraid 
for the Lord has become my salvation. We will have experience going from dark to light, from brokenness to wholeness, and that reality will be so tangible for us that we will feel utterly secure. And God says, not only will we feel full, not only will we feel safe, but we will feel joy. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We are thirsty. We are thirsty for something that is good. We are thirsty for something that is delightful. And God says, there will be a day where you no longer are thirsty because my salvation will mean that as you savor it and as you experience it, you will have this endless water that you can drink and will fill you with joy. Just let me pause and just think about that for a moment. I think sometimes we think that God's primary agenda is to make us obedient or God's primary agenda maybe just to save us from certain punishments. But God is saying, no, I actually want something bigger than that. I want you to be joyful. I want you to experience real joy. In fact, it's joy that is so big that it wells up beyond just our own feeling and overflows to others. I mean, that's the way it works, right? When we find something that delights us, we want to talk about it. Some of you might know that there's this obscure book series that I've sometimes spoken of called the Queen of Atolia series, and no one knows about it, but I so love it. I think I've read it like 70,000 times, and anytime I have an opportunity, I will talk about it because I want someone else to enjoy it. It's not like I get a commission or anything. I just know that because I enjoy it, I want others to do it, enjoy it with me. And the same way here, what do we see? We see not only will you say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, but you will say in that day, give thanks, telling other people, give thanks, make his deeds known among not just my friends, I want the nations to know that. Make his name be exalted so that all can see how great God is. Our joy will be so overflowing that our longing will be for the whole world to experience what we are experiencing. You will be full. You will be safe. You will be joyful. Have you ever experienced even a taste of that, that peace, that, that satisfaction? God says, this is what I am promising you. And again, we should acknowledge the fact that even as he speaks of this, he also acknowledges that it is going to seem, for at least a moment, incredibly unlikely. Notice what he says we will say at the very beginning of chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give you thanks, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. There will be a period of time, God says, where you will feel like I am angry with you. There will be a period of time where I will be refining you, and I will be growing you, and I will be humbling you, and it will be hard. And it will seem impossible that good lies on the other side, but you will know that someday you will say, you were angry, but now your anger is turned away, and you have comforted me, and you will rejoice. Do you, do you see what we have? These three promises, a promise of, of harmony, a promise of wholeness, a promise of of happiness, each of these promises are alongside an acknowledgement or even maybe a warning that for each of them there will be a period where these things seem impossible. There will be a dead stump that looks like there is no future for it. 
There will be a shattered people that seem impossible to bring together. There will be what appears to be the angry face of God before you, and hope will seem impossible. And what I think these verses together are calling us to as the people of God is to hold on stubbornly to hope, to have a stubborn hopefulness. Because what we have here put forth before us is a choice. It is a choice that you and I actually will have to make every day and are making every day. When we look at our lives, do we allow what we see in the moment to shape how we feel about things? Do we allow what makes sense in our minds to form the way that we think of our future? Or do we choose to have our vision of the world shaped by the promises of God? Do we choose to put God's promises on our eyes like glasses by which we might see everything differently? That's the choice. The former of these is by far the more natural, and if I am honest, this is oftentimes the way that I default, um, to, to see things as they just seem to be, to see a dead stump of this world and say, that's it, to see what is shattered and conclude that it is never going to be repaired, to see the brokenness of this world and what seems to be the unfixableness of it and to conclude there is nothing beyond this. The best that we can do is just work hard, protect ourselves from the worst kind of suffering, and try to enjoy ourselves as much as we can in the moment. It doesn't take courage, and it ultimately is the way of hopelessness, but that is by far the most natural way of doing things. Or, we can see things differently. We can look at a stump and await the shoot. We can look at what is shattered and await the day when it will be brought back together. We can look at this world that is filled with brokenness and see not despair, but God at work bringing about something beautiful. That, that way of viewing things is not just blind optimism. We choose, if we do choose this way, we choose to view things this way because God tells us to. He has told us this is what is going to happen. In fact, viewed through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection, it already is happening. Think for a moment how much hopelessness it would have felt to be at the point of the cross. Uh, at the cross, the brokenness of humanity is all completely apparent. God's people reject the very Son of God. How broken is that? At, at the cross, Jesus, as He represents us, as the one who kind of carries us before God, what do we see clearly but the anger of God? Jesus himself cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus breathes his last breath, we see what seems to be the end, a, a dead stump with no future. 
But three days later, even despite what seems to be an impossibility, God does exactly what he says he will do. That from the stump, through resurrection, there is a shoot that grows. And Jesus now says, I am risen and all authority has been given to me. And he begins a new kingdom where he says, I am making everything new and all things being made right. Through the resurrection now, the people of God in Christ are able to sing, Though you were angry with me, O Lord, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. And even now, Jesus, through the gospel, is gathering people in Burundi and Botswana and Bolivia and everywhere in the world, all corners, even today, people are hearing the gospel and being brought to Christ and the world is being put back together through him. My my point in this is that when I'm saying and when God is saying there is a way of holding on to hope stubbornly, this is not stubbornly holding on to a pipe dream. This is not stubbornly holding on to magical thinking. This is stubbornly holding on to promises that the God who says, let there be light and there was light speaks now. And he has shown it to be true through his son and his son has signed these promises with his own blood and they are more real than anything that we experience or see. And we have this gift that God gives us in these promises. If we take hold of it, what God gives us is something that the world does not know, and that is a real hope. A confident hope. An endurance giving so that you can make it through the hardest moments of the day, real hope. And and, and if we choose every day, or, or even if you for the first time have not ever trusted in God, but now you are hearing this and you trust God's promises, even you as you take hold of this, it changes us. It gives us, as we take hold of these promises, a different way of viewing the world with confidence, with, with gratitude, with joy, and it empowers us to love. And let me say, as we take hold of this more and more, we, we can expect that the world who is hungering who is thirsting, will ask questions, not because of anything we have done, but because there is something that is going on that's bigger than us. They will ask about our hope. And so even now, I invite you, as one who regularly forgets these promises, as one who regularly sees things in terms of what makes sense rather than what is, let's take a moment together to turn our hearts to God and and confess at times our lack of faith, our lack of hope, and to ask God for help that we would cling to the reality of these promises. Let's spend a couple minutes in silent prayer, and then I will lead us in corporate confession in just a minute's time.